All right, we're going to do some questions. All right. Isaac's in charge of the mic. Be nice to him or he won't come your way. That's right. And because I'm in charge of the mic, I'm going to ask the first few questions. Oh, do it. Let's yeah. go. Well, one of the parallels I thought was neat was you told in your story at the beginning that how you are a Jewish man who basically believes in the promise of the Messiah. And you get up here and then transform that into that you are an American who believes in the Constitution. Like, really, that parallel struck me about how hard you fight for that. And to say, you know what, that, and, and I, I've heard that argument to say that, oh, you're, you're, un, you're not democratic to, to try to do this convention of states. And that's exactly, that's what you tell people, though, is that you are enforcing the Constitution when people say that. So how is the Convention of States going? How are we doing on the number of states? So it takes 34 states to call a convention. Uh, so far, 19 states have called for the convention, so we're well over halfway. It's an impossible project. I mean, this is, this is what I was told from the beginning. Nobody will do this. So we've gotten to 19 states so far. I would say, openly, it's hard. It's a steep hill. Getting to 34 states is not going to be easy, uh, but duty is ours. Results belong to God. So that's where we're at. Uh, I think... Um, we have one state that's really right on the cusp, and that's Kansas. Kansas is kind of a weird situation. We passed in Kansas. They have a state constitutional provision that requires a two-thirds majority vote. That provision is unconstitutional because it contradicts the U.S. Constitution. So we're going to have to litigate that. I think we're going to win that litigation. I think that'll be number 20. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. Thank you. The second question that I have, what do you think the federal government's going to do when we call the Convention of States? Uh, you know, I think before we get to convention, they're going to start debating amendments in Congress. I think Congress is, we've seen this in history, by the way, the 17th Amendment, which I don't love, the direct election of senators, Congress proposed that because the states had come close twice to calling a convention. And so Congress likes to control the game, human beings, right? And so as we get close, I think you'll see them start to propose some kind of term limit, some kind of balanced budget amendment, uh, all the things that we're talking about, some limitations on their power. Our position is that's really, well, I'm going to say it in, uh, in Texas terms. Bless their hearts. <laughs> I mean, it's great if they want to, and they're welcome to make suggestions to the convention, but we're going to go forward with convention no matter what they do. Awesome. So it's worth the fight. Even if we don't win ultimately, to the, it's worth the fight anyway. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. And then uh, the, the final question I have for you is, well, what does fighting look like on practical terms? Like, what can these people right here, what can they do? So I'm going to start at the macro, which is really close to home. And I think this might be the hardest part of the fight. We live in a time where everything's at stake. And I hear people say all the time, you know, um, this is a common one I hear, and, and I apologize if this is your family and this is difficult for you, uh, but I hear people say, yeah, you know, my kids are liberals, and so we just don't talk politics. Ben Franklin's son was a Tory, right? So they were torn apart by the American Revolution. It didn't stop Ben from professing his ideals. Your kids, you, they might not hear conservative values from anybody but you, and they might not want to visit as much anymore, or maybe at all. Uh, I have one aunt uh, who is now, as far as I know, disabled and in the latter stages of her life. I say as far as I know, because when I started leading the Tea Party movement, um, she decided that I was a Nazi and started attacking our family and writing op-eds in our small town newspaper. 
I told my, took my kids out to the movies one night and told them how evil what their parents were doing and, and we had to separate from my, that's my one aunt. She was 13 when I was born, she was my first babysitter. Um, we have to be willing to pay the price for saying what's right and true. And so that might mean, look, this church is an incredible example of this. You guys have a foundational example because most churches nowadays in America are not speaking the truth to the world, right? Not, and I don't, I mean beyond the gospel truth, I mean the political truth to the world. We are guided by our principles, which are biblical principles, which cannot be separated from our politics. Um, so that means this church takes a risk by speaking political truth and by having somebody like me come speak. So you have to do it in your family. I'm going to say politically incorrect things. You need to do it at your place of work. And what that means is you, you might lose your job. You might. And it's easy for me to say I'm going to acknowledge this because I'm paid to do this. I can say the controversial thing and this is my job. For you, it's not your job. And you might be ostracized at work. You might be disciplined at work. And you might be fired at work. Some of my biggest heroes right now in the United States are people who said no to the COVID shot and lost their jobs, right? They, they spoke the truth. They weren't willing to be imposed upon. That's super hard. It's, their lives are not easier because they did this. So you've got to be willing to be the person at your bridge group that when somebody says, well, and just I think in Israel has been a colonial power forever, and you've got to be able to say, no, that's not true. But this is terrorism we're talking about. Are, are you a Nazi? Do you support? And you know what's going to happen? You're not going to be invited for bridge next week. So this is a real deal. This is not easy stuff. I, I make light of it, but that's not easy. That's a big deal when you get ostracized from friends, family, work. Uh, you, you don't have this problem here, but in a lot of churches, you can't talk this way and you're going to be ostracized from your church. So we have to be willing to take those risks and to do those things. And then more broadly, what else are you going to do? This is one I hear all the time, Isaac. You know, I would love to help, but I'm so busy, right? I get it. That's not, that's not untrue. I mean, you know, you're a dad, you got kids, right? You're obviously engaged heavily here at the church. We've got jobs, families, church obligations, coaching, kids, grandkids. I always ask people the question, okay, so what is it that you wouldn't do for your kids? What wouldn't you, if I put it that way, what wouldn't you do for your kids? You can't give five hours for your kid's future, 10 hours a week for your kid's future, right? Give up your model train hobby or whatever it is, right? I know it's hard. Again, I don't mean to minimize this. All of this stuff requires that we make sacrifices. We live in a generation when most of us have not been asked to sacrifice for our country. I talked to my father-in-law before he passed away. He was a World War II vet, a Bronze Star recipient. He understood what it meant to sacrifice for his country. And most of us don't because we've just never been asked. It's not because we're bad people or we're lazy or it's just we haven't been in that moment. One of my favorite Ronald Reagan quotes, he has so many of them and, and so many memorable ones. One of my favorite ones is one that's not very remembered. I actually have this plaque in my office and it says, they say we live in a time when there are no heroes, but they just don't know where to look. And and he went on in that speech to talk about the hero is the guy standing on stage next to me. The hero is your pastor. The hero is your grocery clerk. The hero is the person who works wrenches on your truck when your truck breaks down. Heroes rise according to circumstances. If there's no call to heroics, 
then the most heroic people don't look like heroes to you. They just look like your neighbor or something. We are in a time where we are being called to be heroes. And what heroism looks like right now is speaking up, is working when nobody else is working, is volunteering for convention of states. We have a table out there. You can volunteer for convention of states. It's giving money that you feel like you can't afford to give. And I mean, I always tell people, you know how you know you've given too much? You're thinking, man, I really can't afford this. That's how you know that you've maybe given enough when you get to that point. And so do all of those things. Work for candidates. Give money to candidates. Knock on doors. Uh, be block walking, making phone calls for them. And do get involved in Convention of States. Convention of States, way more than just Convention of States, we're involved in elections. We're involved in pro-life activity. We're involved in Second Amendment activity. Anything that bolsters freedom and helps us build a self-governing grassroots army, that's what we're involved in. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. All right, so I'm going to walk around and take questions. Uh, do not take the microphone from me. I'm going to keep holding it, all right? Just in case I can cut you off in a political rant, all right? But I'll do it politely. I really will. Um, but uh, yeah, we're open to questions right now. And uh, yeah, feel free to buy hands. OK. I love it when it's somebody right here in the front row. She's a good one, too, I'll tell you. I hope my question is, makes sense. With 2024 being such a critical election, are we running out of time to get these things done? Because if we want to have term limits, we've got to do it now. Otherwise, our next president will run away with what he's doing already now. Yeah, look, I think this is a great question. And I get this question in one form or another all the time. Do we have enough time to call a convention of states? Like, is it, is it too late? I think that's a great question and very reasonable. And my answer is, I have no idea. I mean, I really have no idea. And the reason I say that is because I don't know what happens five minutes from now, five days. I, people come up to me, this is a normal thing that happens to me at events as an aside. Very often, especially in a church, somebody will approach me after I speak and they'll say, have you read Revelation? I'm like, yeah, of course I've read Revelation. <laughs> you see what's going on in Israel, right? And they'll start to lay out their map of end times and when it's coming and here's the date. And, and I always say, first of all, I know I'm not supposed to know. <laughs> the Bible tells me that. I don't know. And the Bible tells me that I'm supposed to be an overcomer at all times, right? And, and for me, the message of Revelation is it's going to get really bad, and my job is to be steadfast and be an overcomer, right? That's all. And so that's, that would be my answer to you about Convention of States. I don't know if we get it done in time. I do know that everything that we're doing in Convention of States works towards election success. In other words, our grassroots, people talk about likely voters. I can guarantee you in the Convention of States Army nationally, over 5 million people, there are 5 million voters, not likely voters, right? Every person who's involved in this project is going to vote and they're going to get their friends to vote and their families to vote and they're going to be poll watchers and they're going to be block walkers. And so what I would say is, whether or not we get to convention, we're building the largest self-governing grassroots army in the history of the country, and we have to do that if we're going to save America. Yeah. Great question. So I um, would like you to elaborate a little bit more on how you guys are exciting other states to be a part of this full-heartedly and to join the list that's on the back of the pamphlet. Sure. So there's, in, in our sort of pantheon of states, we've got two kinds of states. 
Uh, we've got what we call past states, like Indiana, states that have already passed the Convention of States Resolution, and states that have yet to pass, which are states that are potential, what we would call harvest states for Convention of States. Every state matters. I mean, this is really interesting. I have people say to me, oh, California, like seriously. And whatever disdain you have for California, you're correct, first of all. <laughs> I'm not going to defend California. Do you know that California has more registered Republicans than any state in the United States of America? Like, that's wild. More than Texas. Right? That's crazy. It's a big state. And so even smaller numbers proportionally are huge numbers. So part of what we're trying to do, that's what I would describe as a blue state. And blue states like New York or New Jersey or California, we encourage people to get involved in Convention of States because, good Lord, what else are you going to do? Right? California has a supermajority of Democrats in the legislature. The, the legislature is not going to be responsive immediately to Convention of States. But you know who is? city councils, school boards, county governments, 85% of the geography of California is red, but the people who are conservative like us don't control all that geography. They don't control all the levers and layers of government in all of those places. So in places that are more blue, what I'm trying to encourage people to do is get involved in the local fight. And we'll work towards convention of states with those folks, but be involved at the city, state, and county level and the school board level in those places. In states like Indiana that have passed, that's equally important, by the way. We should be working together to take school boards, to take city councils and county boards. It would blow your mind how many cities in Indiana or counties in Indiana that are conservative by population and have liberal governance. It's stunning, right? And it's because we haven't paid attention to that, and the left has. And so in a state like Indiana, I encourage people to do the same thing. Also in Indiana, what I'm encouraging people to do is be prepared for rescission efforts. This is true in any state where we've passed. That application can be rescinded at any time by the state legislature. We get people who come into the legislatures. We had a big rescission effort in Alabama in this session, and we fought that off. So we have to be prepared for that. Also for state teams like Indiana, we help other states. So in other words, if we've got stuff going on in Ohio, which we do right now, for example, the Indiana team will be involved in making calls into Ohio and helping us move things forward in Ohio. In Ohio right now, we're, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, they're trying to make abortion legal all the way through nine months. They're trying to make pot legal all the way through forever. <laughs> no nine-month limitation on pot, right? They're trying to make it so that every person can grow 12 plants. By the way, that's about $185,000 in income to anybody who grows 12 plants a year. They're trying to destroy their state. So we work in other states to help with that. So we use that, the ability to help other states and work out of states to enthuse people in all the states. Hi, Mark. I'm a member of the grassroots and um, what you see right here is pretty much the state leadership team of COS in Illinois. We really appreciate our brothers and sisters. God bless in, you guys for in coming. Indiana. <laughs> I am actually that stiff Jew. Um, Me too. I'm observant in my Judaism. I'll be uh, doing morning services tomorrow at 8 a.m. Thank you. And um, I read, um, oh gosh, my mind's gone blank. Um, I, uh, the Bible books, um, Dennis Prager, thank you. Oh, oh, I, the best. I read Dennis Prager. 
And um, this is more a comment than a question mark, uh, but I'm 75 years old. Um, I may not see the convention in my lifetime. Um, but my analogy is Moses never got to the promised land. That said, I work very hard, and my dear wife refers to COS as my seven day a week, 24 hour a day, unpaid job, and it's my passion. Thank you, and God bless you. Before you, before you go to the next question, I, got, I can't recommend it highly enough. Those Prager books are amazing. And uh, that's what you just said, the Moses story. That's what Prager says about the Moses story in those books, right? He, he says that it is a model for us to show us that from, from an earthly perspective, most of us never make it to the promised land, right? Moses did, Moses was not allowed into the promised land. I mean, this is extraordinary. He goes on to say in that, in that chapter of the book that the closest most of us on earth will ever get to the promised land, if your parents and you're blessed like we've been, you'll know this is when you have grown children and they got their careers and they're happy and healthy and married and maybe have kids, that's as close as parents get to the promised land, right? But I think this is really important, and I, again, I can't recommend it highly enough. If you want to have a foundation in your faith, Jew or Christian, there are no better books that I've ever read in my life than Prager's books on Torah. And five books of the Torah, he's written three of them so far. What's that? The Rational Bible is what it's called. And they're very rational. Dennis has, uh, as an observant Jew, with a great respect for Christians and an incredible dialogue with the Christian community. Um, I had a chance to sit down with him for dinner one-on-one -on -one not long ago. Total bucket list item for me to sit with Dennis Prager uh, and uh, ask him. I told him that I'm waiting for the next book because I've read the first three and he complained that I was putting too much pressure on him. <laughs> so just know the next one's coming out. So I think it's supposed to be out, I think he said October of this year I don't know if he's on it. I'll, I'll text him afterwards, and I'll tell him you and I are waiting for it. <laughs> Isaac, we've got somebody over here, too. Uh, David had a question. Yep, go ahead, David. Uh, Mark, thanks for being such a great leader of our organization. My question is, could you comment why Nancy Pelosi said about two months ago, please trust us, uh, we'd like to implement some term limits. Is it showing up on their polling data, or why would such a lady say such a statement. <laughs> well, I, if I had to guess, her term limit's going to be that everybody terms out of office when they're 112 years old, right? <laughs> and she'll fake her age because I think she's already passed that. Uh, no, I think, it is, I think it is showing up in her polling data. I think it's they're realizing. By the way, this is pulled for 35 years. We've pulled term limits in the American public, not, not we as in, as in me or our organization, but it's been consistently pulled. The American people, about 85% of the American people are in favor of term limits on Congress. Uh, one quick thing I want to say about term limits on Congress. If you watch our Williamsburg experiment, uh, and they came out with a, they talked about term limits, came out with a proposed term limits. Uh, and so I'm just going to do a quick test on the audience. They said, 24 years is the appropriate term limit. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? All right, so, but, now this is why I'm doing that test. 
So I think that that sounded terrible. And they had some technicalities in there. It was nine terms in the House. It was uh, four terms in the Senate. Total time in the House and Senate not to exceed 24 years. That was, that's the way they couched it. And so I talked to some of the folks that were there. Most of them are state legislators. I'm like, this is ridiculous. That's way too much. And they said, okay, Mark, who do you want to term out? You tell me who annoys you that you would want to term out. And my answer was like, Pelosi, McConnell, Schumer, right? So the, the big names, all the ones that we know. And they said, every single one of those has served well more than 24 years. And the reality is there's much more turnover in the Senate and the House than we recognize. We just happen to pay attention to the big names, the ones that have been there forever. 24 years would wipe out all those people I just named and a lot more that you might think of. And they said there is institutional, there's knowledge and or value in institutional knowledge. I'm not saying I agree with them, but I'm saying sometimes when we look at something on the surface and we just, oh, that's terrible, 24 years. After talking to those guys, I'm like, oh, I get what you're saying. Because every one of those names, that's who I'm thinking of when I'm thinking of term limits. I'm not thinking of some guy that's been there for five terms, 10 years. I mean, look at our new Speaker of the House. He's on his fifth term right now, I think. Right. And so that's not what I'm thinking of when I'm thinking of term limits. Anyway, that's uh, so Nancy Pelosi, you know, I, I actually think what's going to happen to her is God's probably going to end her term before we do. All right, Mark, we uh, I want to respect everyone's time. So we one more question from the audience here. I'm in uh, Northwest Indiana. I'm not, unfortunately, uh, here in this area. And I'm so frustrated with the Republicans in my area, the lack of what they're doing. They're satisfied with, oh, we know what the Democrats are doing, so, you know, and their organization and everything. So it's like they don't do anything to help. Like, I ran for school board a year ago. Thank you. I had no one. No one from the Republican Party helped right. me. No one. I was totally on my own. There's a young man that's running right now for our uh, town board. We had a, a, a meeting, our town uh, Republican meeting, and they barely even mentioned it. How, and I've been going for a couple of years to the Republican meeting, and I even go to other township Republican right. meetings to say, hey, can't... Uh, can't you help? Tell us when to put up signs. Where do we get signs? Uh, who, how do we go to these doors? How, how do we get people to commit to help us? Just any way in helping. But they're just like, uh, you know, nothing. And, and what do I do to get rid of these leaders and to bring in... The, uh, and another thing is uh, a woman, uh, a few people have come to the Republican meeting because they took, I, I teach the um, Rick Green's class. Thank you, uh, love and, that. Um, a couple of the people from that class have come to our meeting and there's so nothing to do and uh, that they're, they've stopped coming. And right. I say, don't stop coming, keep putting the pressure on. But they give up. I don't know how, what, to, what else to do, I'm so frustrated. Yeah, so this is a problem all over the country, by the way. Uh, there, I travel, I've been in 49 states now all over the country. I speak at a lot of stuff like this. Sometimes I speak at Republican events. Here's something I've never heard. The Republican Party in my area is awesome. Never heard that. Okay? 
I'm sure it exists somewhere. Sorry if you're a member of a county committee or something that's really awesome. Maybe they exist, but I, I haven't run across them. And so here's what I'll tell you. What you have to do is what you're doing, but the, the beginning end game, the first goal, is to take over your county committee. Like you, you need to run your county committee. And it's not actually that hard to do. It takes time and work, but it's not complicated. You probably know technically how to do it at this point. One of the things that I have found out is, and, and we do this all over the country now because I found this out, most precinct chair positions, or a very lot of them, are empty. Nobody runs for them, right? And so the first thing is to start stuffing your people into precinct chair positions. It's the rules of how to do that in every place are different. I don't know the rules here. I can tell you we're making a big effort in the biggest county in Texas right now, Harris County. What was that? So they, they may be rigged, but I'm telling you, if you get enough people, you can take over a county party. We've done it all over the country. Over their objections, it can be ugly. You can end up in total warfare with these folks. And I understand that there's a lot of rigging going on. And we can talk about any particular place and, and how I might be able to help because I'd be happy to try and help in any given place. But here's the thing I can not every one of them is rigged, right? And what they are mostly is what you described. They're mostly lazy people that are involved in a social club. And it's the same people and they've been doing it for 20 years and they get together and have lunch or whatever they do once a month and they don't do anything. And when a bunch of people with energy come in, generally speaking, I have found that you're able to take them over if you make a plan and you bring a bunch of people with you. Uh, we've got this going on right nearby where I live right now in Georgetown. Uh, there's a, a great woman named Deborah Damon, and I'd be happy to introduce you to her. And she is sort of surreptitiously taking over the, the county party there. She's over 50% right now. She's not running for chair because she wants somebody else to stand up and she'll continue the organizing. But I would say within a year, they will own that county party. And that's a model for us in Texas because we got the same problem all over Texas. And a lot of times they rig the elections. They fix the way people get nominated. They control the precinct chair applications. There's all kinds of things that they do to control it if they want to keep you out. But in most cases, with enough muscle and grassroots, we found that we can force our way in. And I highly recommend that you do that. Yeah, so it works all over the country. I, I want, I'm going to close with something, if I could, before you close out the evening. Yeah, of course. Um, I briefly used the phrase earlier, lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. Um, Rick Green, a lot of you know who Rick Green is. He teaches biblical citizenship. He's way smarter than me. He knows way more about the Constitution than I do. And I was just out at Patriot Academy shooting with him. He's also a way better shot than I am. I'm humiliated to say. I'm working on that. I've taught Rick Green one thing, and it's this story. And... Uh, and he gives me credit for it. I really appreciate that because I, I admire him so much. He's such a good friend of mine. Next to my desk on the wall, when I sit looking at my screen, up on the left is a Declaration of Independence. It's beautiful. It's hand calligraphied. I mean, literally the one I have, a really good friend of mine had it made for me, a woman in Texas. Hand calligraphies the whole thing. It takes her about three days to do the document. It's just beautiful. On parchment, it's spectacular. When he first gave it to me, it's my friend Tim Dunn I was describing earlier. Uh, what I didn't realize is that he had had my signature put on there. It's pretty cool, huh? 
I know I don't look that old. My signature's on there, Patty's signature on there, he and his wife, and a couple other people that we've worked together in politics with. It really means a lot to me. It's kind of overwhelming to see that. Rick at Patriot Academy, they have you sign if you go through some of their Patriot Academy stuff, the kids. So I look at that all the time. I read it all the time. Like I get up from my desk, I stretch my legs, I'll go stand there and I'll just read a few lines or you know, a paragraph of it. And so I can't say I have it memorized, but I've read it through and through over and over and over. And several years back, I was reading it and I came to the words, lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. This is the very end, right? Every one of us knows those words, lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. If I said lives and fortune, you would all say sacred honor. You could fill in any of those blanks. It's true for almost all Americans who, certainly all Americans who love America. How's that? And so I remember reading it, and it says they pledge their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. And I thought, even though I had just read to that point, I thought, what are they pledging to? Because when you read something and you've read it a whole bunch of times and you know the language, your mind just sort of skims ahead, right? And so when I get there, I just kind of skim ahead. And I thought, what are they pledging to? And I went back and I reread it. And what it says, uh, there's a reference to, uh, in the witness of divine providence, or the hand of divine providence, they're referring to God, we pledge to each other our lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. And I had never seen that before which is really weird because I read it a lot of times. If you had asked me, I would have said, well, they pledge it to the country or they pledge it to the flag or they pledge it to the army. I'm not a brand new country they had just made. Pledging life, fortune, and sacred honor to the United States of America would make perfect sense under those circumstances. Pledging it to the flag. How about Washington, right? The, the general of the Continental Army. All of those things would have made sense to each other seemed odd and a little bit out of place when I first looked at it. And so over time, I started to think about what were they facing when they signed that document. That was their death warrant. Literally every one of those guys that signed that document, that was their death warrant. They had now committed treason against the king. It was probably their family's death warrant, their community's death warrant, their business's death warrant. Serious stuff. Franklin said that we have to all hang together or most assuredly we'll hang separately. They knew what they were doing. When you live in a time like that, the idea of risk is real. And they knew that if they were going to face off against the king, against the Tories, against the power of the British army, they needed each other. Of course, they always look to God and they say that, but they also knew that they would need each other. And so when they signed that paper, they looked around that room and they said, I'm going to count on you and you can count on me. And that means a lot to me. And I read that over and over, and I tell this story very often, and I'll never stop telling this story as long as I'm in the fight, which is for me, I say that every night. I say my prayers. I'm, I'm vigilant about saying my prayers every night before I go to bed, and I either stand in the bathroom, I'm looking in the mirror, or I lay in bed, and I think I pledge my, lives, my, my life, my fortune, and my sacred honor. And when I do it, for me, what I'm thinking of is you. And I don't mean that generically. It's easy to say, oh, I pledge my life, my fortune, and my sacred honor to all these people. The grassroots, I could say, right? For me, I've spent now 13 years traveling the United States of America and meeting people everywhere I go. People that are now part of my family. People who I will respond if they call. I often surprise people because they'll write an email to Convention of States and they're mad about something. We do a lot of stuff. That means we do stuff wrong. 
or stuff that people disagree with, and they'll write to me and they'll be like, oh, I think Mark Meckler was on Tucker and he said this thing that was ridiculous. And I almost always call those people personally. And I love it. Those are my favorite phone calls. They're so shocked that I called. <laughs> Sometimes they've been a little mean to me. <laughs> so maybe they're a little embarrassed that I'm calling, but I'm calling because I pledged my life, fortune, and sacred honor to that person. And if they're upset with something I said, then I owe them a phone call. And sometimes I call somebody because they're in trouble and I'm trying to help. So what I want you to know tonight as I close out that I've been here now. I consider you part of my family because you've tolerated me for a long time and I appreciate that. And so to you, I pledge my life, my fortune, and my sacred honor to each of you. And what that means is if you need me, you can call. You can write. I'm one guy or one organization. I can't always fix it. I'm not necessarily going to be able to help, but know that I will try. And I hope that you, when you go home tonight, will think about that and will think to yourself, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to pledge your life, your fortune, and your sacred honor to your fellow patriots? And I believe that if you do that, we are going to save the United States of America. God bless you guys. Thanks for having me tonight. Yeah.